Welcome to this episode of Ready, Set, Grit, Your Life on Purpose with Ellen Barton, where you'll hear thought-provoking discussion, inspirational stories, and get action tips for creating the life of your dreams. Hello and welcome to Ready, Set, Grit, Your Life on Purpose, a weekly podcast in which we talk about the secrets behind living the life you've always dreamed of. I'm Ellen Barton, and today my guest is a fellow entrepreneur with some big ideas. Her name is Liz O'Connor, and she is the owner and founder of Strategy Matters, which is based in Boston. Liz, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, I'm glad to have you here. And how about we start with having you tell us a little bit about your company, Strategy Matters. What kind of companies do you work with and what kind of problems do you guys solve? Sure. Um, So we are a small company. We're uh, six people all together. And we work with professional services firms as well as government agencies and nonprofits as they tackle complex challenges often related to strategy or organizational development. Um, And to give an example of what that might look like, we have recently worked with a acoustic consulting firm, uh, they were trying to figure out how to have a company culture that could balance the drive towards, um, you know, their impulses towards profitability and their desire to maximize profits. And they wanted to balance that with their um, sort of freewheeling company culture and their uh, intellectual exploration and research and development functions. So we worked with their team to help them figure out where the right mix was and what the right business strategy would be to help them keep those things in harmony. Oh, that's really interesting. And that's a great example of, um, I'm sure, problems that a lot of us struggle with as we're trying to figure out the culture and making the whole thing enjoyable for employees, but then keeping our eye on the bottom line, too. Absolutely. Yeah, we're, we try to help um, businesses take those things into a position where they're no longer at war with each other, and they're actually working with each other to in a sort of dynamic equilibrium. Yeah, no, that's that's really great. Um, I don't know if this is a fair question because every organization and company is so unique, but are there common mistakes that you frequently come across when you um, you know, start working with a company? Are there common mistakes that many, say, small businesses tend to make? I think the most common mistake that businesses make is uh, making a set of assumptions about their employees that are both untrue and untested. And to give an example, we hear a lot of talk these days about millennials and their work ethic or their work habits. Um, It's really not true that this generation coming up wants to work less. Uh, They may have work habits that are different from the generation before, um, but they're hardworking and they want to contribute. And so I think there's a um, a lot of bad business decisions made when people are working with outdated assumptions and they're not testing them in real time in their real workplaces. I think in general, um, bosses and managers and owners of companies um, are too quick to assume laziness on the part of employees as well. And I think usually when people are underperforming, there are much deeper and more fixable reasons than that. So that would be my most common mistake that we see. Huh. Do you think that, so like as far as a manager or an owner trying to get honest feedback from employees, is it almost necessary or advisable to bring in that third party neutral um, person or, or team like, like yours? Because I would think that, you know, expecting employees to be honest, especially if there's some criticism, that may be difficult if you're like talking directly to your boss. Yes. You know, I think there's two advantages to having someone outside. 
One is that you might hear different information because of the point you mentioned. You know, people find it easier to talk to a stranger and also we can promise them that we won't quote them. We're just trying to understand what's going on. So there's the sort of layer of protection there. But in addition, I think the other advantage is that even with the same data, an outsider will bring fresh eyes to it. So even if your employees have told you over and over again what they're experiencing or what they want or how to help them be more productive, as an owner or a, you know, a busy manager who's got a lot of other worries every day, you may not be hearing it or processing it as deeply and as fully as we can help you do. Yeah, that's exactly what I was just thinking as you were talking about that, is that sometimes we can be getting that feedback from our employees or coworkers and just not even be able to recognize it. Definitely. You know, even when it's there. And I liked the point you brought up too about the millennials because that's such a common problem or perceived problem that people have. Um, and I have to agree with you, you know, I have certainly haven't seen it in my own experience, um, the laziness or whatever. It seems like it's a, it is a lack of communication or just a different style of doing things. And also it seems that Speaking in generalities, um, millennials are sometimes motivated by different things than we think they are, or that maybe different that maybe our generation, the older generation, is motivated by. You know, I, that's interesting, and I would love to spend more of my time sort of pursuing that because a lot of our work is based on um, my work is based on sort of a, a basic set of assumptions about I like to say the kind of animals we are. You know, human beings are working animals. We like to have purpose. We like to be noticed when we've contributed. Um, and, you know, so my assumptions are that that's true for all of us. And so what mo what motivates us in the day-to-day -day sense um, might be, I don't know, the need to pay the rent. But at a more purposeful level, I think we're all the same. So I think it's at that more superficial level that you do see those differences. So, for example, it might be true that people are at much younger ages than, say, I, I was, interested in some kind of work-life balance is the common way to say it. You know, I don't think I ever gave that a thought until I had children, but I see young people now who don't have children, may not have um, a partner, but just really place a premium on their ability to get to yoga class. And I think that's great. So I think they're highly motivated, but they're also motivated to take care of themselves and, and live the life that they want by their own design. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, I agree with you. And I think that's really interesting. And it does seem that perhaps they're more in touch with their own needs and taking care of themselves and such. And I wonder if maybe, I'll, I'll just say our generation, I, I think we're the same age. I'm not really sure. Um, <laughs> I'm 51, so there you go. <laughs> well, close. We're really close. <laughs> but, um, but I wonder if, because the millennials and, and the generation beyond them, which I think is called, um, help me out, Z or I or something. I don't oh, know. I've lost track of all the names. <laughs> but, I, um, but I'm wondering if, because they are more in touch with their own needs and at a, at a younger age, they're realizing they need this balance, they need to get to yoga class or whatever it is. And I wonder if our generation tends to jump to this judgment of, oh, you're really selfish because you know, mm -hmm. we were so selfless at that age. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe we just weren't in tune with it. You know, maybe we just weren't aware. You know? Yeah, and I think it was a different kind of selfishness, too. And by the way, I just checked. You're right. It was Generation Z, or the people born from the 90, mid-90s to early 2000s. 
Okay. And by the way, Forbes says they're 25% of the population. So we better figure out how to work yeah. with them, right? Um, but I think, you know, it's it was a different kind of selfishness motivating. I'll say just from my own experience, when I was working very long hours and trying to be noticed at my in my, earlier in my career, it, that was selfish in a different way. You know, that was really about advancing my career and getting recognition and promotions. And, you know, I think that it, that was definitely still all about me. Um, even though the work I was doing had some purpose and meaning outside of that. So, and I was, as this generation is too, the millennials and generation Z, I was motivated by both of those things, by my own gain and by the contribution I was making to the community. Mm-hmm. No, that's, and, and while we're on the topic of different generations, I'm just curious, do you come across situations with organizations that you work with where there's this like multi-generational workspace and um, maybe a situation where a younger person is the manager, is the boss, and they're having to give direction to someone who's 60 or 70 or um, mm-hmm. whatever age they are. Do you ever see conflicts or, or problems um, when situations like that come up? Absolutely. Um, in fact, my first real job, I would say I was 25 years old, and I um, became the boss of a team of about 11 people, most of whom were in their 40s. And it was terrifying. And I see that all the time. There are lots of reasons that that can happen. I work um, often in police departments as well. And it's not uncommon to see a young officer promoted to sergeant and assume responsibility for managing a team of people, you know, many decades their senior. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a very big challenge in whatever context, because that young person has to really figure out, has to find their leadership voice and has to figure out how to um, hold a team accountable, even when perhaps they haven't had as much experience with the very issues that they're holding their team accountable for dealing with. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I can definitely see that. And um, yet another reason to you know bring in some coach or outside consultant to help with that. And I want to just slightly shift gears and ask you about um, small businesses as they grow. There are certain challenges that can come up and maybe some tips you can give us for the owners of these businesses, you know, as they do bring on employees and develop a culture. Are there um, maybe some guidelines you can give or you know, is it really important to be intentional about the culture you're developing? Do you just let it naturally happen? If you don't pay attention to it consciously, are there problems that are likely to come up? Um, oh, I feel yeah. like a lot of our listeners are entrepreneurs that, you know, maybe now they're solopreneurs, but maybe not forever. So just. Right. Well, you know, I think um, most of us, and I'm sure you and I have this in common as we watch our businesses grow, see our own personality assets and problems amplified. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the first risk is that the founder and owner will just create a company in their own image. Um, And so if that is, if you're, if you're perfect, then that's wonderful. But if you have any flaws at all, that's going to catch up to you pretty quickly. Um, And I think that it, um, we often see people too late noticing the impact of that. So I'll give you an example. You know, I'm, I'm terrible with deadlines. I can barely meet a deadline. I have to have some sort of compensatory system around me or else I will miss all of my deadlines. But if I don't pay attention to that and I don't hire a team that can help keep that stuff on track and I'm not really clear with everybody, look, this is not a strength of mine and we're going to have to work together and I'll cover you on some other stuff, but you got to, you got to watch my back on these deadlines. 
And if I'm not clear about that, we're going to miss deadlines. And, and also then you run into the risk of people sort of pointing fingers at each other when bad things happen. So I think there is a real risk of failing to attend to um, the intentional culture and sort of the, the nature of the collaborative work with a small company as it grows and just understanding sort of how to play to everyone's strengths. And once that is outlined and committed to, once we have decided, okay, we're going to build this company so that we've got a diverse team with um, really different skill sets and we're going to put that to work in a synergistic way, that creates a culture of collaboration, of community, of mutual support, which is you know, highly engaging for people as well as comfortable. Um, so I think it's a really, it's, it, it, it almost, I want to sort of back away from the idea that culture is something that lays on top of the productivity. It's really quite closely connected and interrelated in this analysis that I'm offering. So let me just ask you about um, assessments. What assessments do you like to use to help people um, become aware of their strengths and weaknesses? Sure. Um, we use a lot of different tools, but I, I'm very um, I'm inclined to start with the simple Myers Briggs if people haven't taken it before. Um, I think it can be very helpful in illuminating both things about one's own work and and sort of interests and it works at home too. But um, for our purposes in the workplace, it can re- really be useful in helping people understand how to organize their time and their workspace and their priority list and. Um, in addition, it has a lot of benefits in helping people understand why their interactions with their coworkers are, are going the way they're going one way or another. And simple things like understanding that it's okay to interrupt one person because they're an extrovert and they find that to be a sign of your engagement. And it's not okay to interrupt a second person because they're an introvert and they find that really annoying. That can be really a useful self-awareness if you're a boss or even anybody. Um, I also... It's funny, I'm partial to using something called the strengths, um, strengths-based leadership, and there's a strengths finder test in this book. The funny thing about it is I like it not so much for the assessment, which I find um, a little overly complex when you get your results, but what I like about it is the commitment that it helps you make as a manager to leveraging people's strengths and and the it enables you to stop looking at where people are weak and trying to fix that and instead building a team which has complementary strengths. So I wouldn't say I love the assessment so much as the theory behind the assessment. Yeah, and obviously there's a lot of value when you um, can use those results and put it, put it to use and, and turn it into action and awareness within your organization. Do you, so when in the example you gave about the, the extrovert that doesn't mind being interrupted and someone that's more introverted, you know, don't, don't interrupt them people. Um, do you actually present the results to the team as a whole and say, Hey, Sally over here is an introvert. Don't interrupt her. Um, how do you, how do you typically like put those findings to use within an organization? Wow. That's a good question. Um, well, there's a couple different ways. Um, if there's an organization that's basically healthy and they're, they're doing kind of a checkup or a tune up or something, often I will just say, you know, here are the res- your personal results. And then Myers-Briggs has a, um, has a set of sort of one pagers that talk- are called type at work. And it will tell you, you know, these folks, when there's conflict happening, will re- react like that. Or these folks, when there's pressure happening, will react like that. And I'll give everybody the full set 
And I'll say, you know, here's the, there are 16 Myers-Briggs personality types. And I'll say, you know, there's 16 different types. If you're working closely with the team, it may be useful to you to know the, the Myers-Briggs types of each of those members and just read this and, and think about how you can adjust your work style or your leadership management style to get the best results. If I'm working with a team that is not particularly high functioning, I will often use another assessment. It's short, though. Um, it's called the Team Cohesion Assessment, and I adapted it from something in use by the Coast Guard. And, you know, who better to understand the importance of a high-performing team than the Coast Guard, right? They have life-or-death situations, and you're all stuck on the same boat. So cohesion's got to be pretty important. So I, I adapted their Team Cohesion Assessment, and I'll use that with a work group or a whole company sometimes. And once we've done that assessment, which is really only about like 12 questions, but it will point out the places where the team needs to work. And if the team's work is stymied by interpersonal conflict, um, I will then often go to a process called um, role negotiation, which was the brainchild of a guy named Roger Harrison way back in the 70s. And role negotiation is a super simple process, but it just enables everybody to slow down their interactions and reflect on them and figure out where they're really where the gears are really grinding. So those are the ways that it works. Um, sometimes after the role negotiation happens, the MBTI or the Myers-Briggs assessment comes into use again, because if I'm making a demand on you that is really asking something of you that isn't your in your nature, isn't in your wheelhouse, then it's helpful for me to figure out that earlier rather than later and stop asking, figure out another way to get to where I'm going. You know, usually there's another way to get what you need. And so if we can just figure out the easiest way, people will be happier. Hmm. Is the work you do with companies, is it kind of like a one and done thing where you just go in and, you know, assess and help them fix things and then you're done? Or is it more like going to the dentist where you're like, um, you know, doing a checkup every six months or every year and just making sure everything is okay and maybe tweaking here and there? And, you know, seeing your clients on a regular basis, or are you, you more like you just work with them one time? Yeah. Like how does that usually work? You know, we do both. Um, often people call us because they think they need us for a one-time thing. Maybe they have a board of directors and they're doing a two-day retreat and they want some dynamic facilitation. And they want to make sure it's fun and productive. So they call us to do that. But then by the time that's done, they've noticed a couple of things, which is that the meetings are better when somebody else has designed and run them, um, that people are more engaged and get more work done when you spend a little money on it in that way. And so they'll say, okay, you know, we'll do this. Let's do this annually and just update our goals. Or, you know, they will often decide to keep us um, coming back. And I, I love the idea that we're like the dentist and that it's, you know, it's good hygiene, but um, it's way more fun to work with us than to go to the dentist. <laughs> well, I'm sure <laughs> it do, is. I can tell. <laughs> yeah, but we do a lot of that kind of routine maintenance, as, as you will um, think of it with our clients. And we have, you know, such flexibility. We're such a small company and we can we can arrange to do that on a monthly, quarterly, yearly basis. We have some clients that have a very light but ongoing relationship with us. One, for example, we did about a six-month strategic planning process with a company. They're about, uh, I don't know, 50, 60 employees and um, about $10 million in business every year. And we did a long strategic planning process with them. They spent more time and money on it, I think, than they originally wanted to. But they, the reason for that was that they really found it kind of valuable. And then we thought we were all done. And we put them on a path to implementation. We have a, we have a process that we leave behind to help people be successful in implementation. And they've decided they'd like to meet with us quarterly just around that, just to make sure that their implementation is going as smoothly as it can. 
And I think at some point to decide, is it time to update our plan? You know, we're, we're just a year into the implementation, so it's not yet. Um, but I think they like to keep that relationship open so that we're still familiar with what's going on in the company so that we could advise them if we needed to, Hey, you know, it's time to take a second look at these goals. Um, and they're also going through a conversion to employee stock ownership. So I think they're anticipating that there may be some personnel challenges. And so we'll be on hand to help them with that. And again, we don't, we're not an HR company. We don't sort of look at personnel as independent of other elements. We're looking at organizational design and culture as they interact with each other. So something like a conversion to employee stock ownership is a very profound moment to be thinking about those things. Yeah, that's really interesting. And it's kind of a good segue to talking about your company. So one of the things that's really interesting to me about your company is the way that you have um, established your own culture as one in which you are very um, transparent and open with your employees, so much so that any of the employees from an intern to a senior employee can look at your books and see the finances and things like that. And that's pretty unusual for most companies. Can you talk a little bit about that and how it's affected your culture? Sure. Um, I decided to do that because I wanted a very high level of buy-in from my colleagues here in a couple of ways. I wanted everyone to understand sort of the importance of some of the maybe less fun aspects of our work, for example, um, you know, managing cash flow. I, I don't know anybody who really loves the challenges of managing cash flow. And yet, if you fail to do that, of course, you're going to run yourself right out of business. So I didn't want to be alone in that. I wanted other people worried about that with me. Um, but it doesn't seem fair to ask people, in my mind anyway, to you know devote themselves to that kind of a worry if they don't have the context of what that you know how that is working. And so, if I wanted people beyond the bookkeeper and our you know people working on the administrative stuff to worry about cash flow, then I have to explain to them how it works. And for me to explain to them how it works, I really think I need to show them the books. Um, and I also wanted to incentivize certain. Um, kinds of behavior, I think is the best way to say it. Um, I wanted people to be uh, rewarded financially for how well the company is doing as opposed to how well individual contributors are doing. So if you look at most consulting companies that have a bonus system or a profit sharing system, there's a high premium placed on individuals bringing in new business and in billing hours. And I think that that is really problematic in our business because we work in teams. And so when a client say refers us, they're referring a team. We can't really assign that to a specific person, nor would I want to. I think it would lead to showboating if people were competing to be, you know, the, the most beloved consultant here. So I didn't want, I knew I didn't want to incentivize people bringing in new clients because of the complexity and the chance for misunderstanding and unfairness in that. And then on the flip side of that, I didn't want to in, I didn't want to incentivize billing more hours because that's not good for our clients, right? I mean, I, the more hours that we spend on their work, the more they have to pay for us if we're billing them by the hour. So if somebody can do something in one hour, I don't want any reason for them to be inclined to let it stretch to two. So my dilemma then was, well, how do I how do I give people a recognition financially for how well we're doing when we're doing well? Um, and the answer to that was a percentage of profits being divided amongst employees. So now the dilemma was, well, if we're going to share the profits, they need to know 
how we how we come to have profits and they need to have a very clear idea of what the profits are and i want them to be able to help us keep more of the money as profit by being wise about how we spend so by showing them the books every month you know we say oh you know someone low in the company might say gee i think we're spending too much on airfare because we're booking too close to the time we have a meeting or something or i think we could have done better um you know on our dues and subscriptions if we cut out this really expensive thing that no one ever uses. So I'm not the only person looking to cut, cut um, expenses and I'm not the only person looking to bring in more money. And that really has just made everything great. And when I think about it, I don't know what I would be hiding, not hiding or keeping private. What am I keeping private if I close the books, right? Instead of asking why open them, I would think, well, why are they closed in the first place? What are we protecting? What sense of privacy salaries? I really don't think that it's appropriate for that to be a secret. I mean, I think the salaries ought to be fair. People ought to know what they should be expected to be paid at different levels. And we ought to all be comfortable with that. I think it's a, a weird kind of obsession we have with privacy around salaries um, and my own included. So my salary, I have committed to never being more than three times what the lowest paid person is paid. So when it's time for raises, we have to look at that. You know, how does, how does everyone get rewarded? And if we're going to, raise me, then we're going to raise other people as well. So that is, I think, that probably the best explanation I've got. Did, did I cover all the points? <laughs> I'm trying to think what else there was to say. About I think that. so. I mean, I, I do think it's a rather innovative way to approach um, all of that, but it makes perfect sense. And it's, I find it really inspirational. It's, it's given me a lot to think about with my own business. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah. Do you have, uh, what do you do about days off? Do you have set days for vacation and or sickness? No. Um, what we have is a quarterly expectation of hours tracked. Um, so basically if I divide up the year um, and I take away roughly six weeks out of that year, so that would be 10 federal holidays and um, uh, four weeks vacation, and I divide all the hours left in the year, but into four quarters, um, we come up with on our math about 900 hours a quarter. Um, so the idea, is that right? No, that's every six months. It's 450 a quarter. Um, so the idea here is that we have a time tracking system, which is important because as we're consultants, sometimes we are paid by the, by the hour. So that's a pretty vital component of our everyday business. And we just use that system to make sure that over the course of a quarter, everyone has, you know, sort of tracked, enough time to be considered a full-time employee. And we also have a convention, which is that if you're going to be out of town for a week or, you know, if you're going to be out of the office and out of work for a week or more, um, that you would discuss it with us and be willing to negotiate the dates if at all possible. Now, sometimes it's not like your, you know, family vacation has to happen on school vacation weeks or whatever. Um, but we have a shared calendar and everybody puts in when they're not going to be around I check the hours every week because we have a meeting and we look at our total number of hours tracked and how much of it was billable um, and try to keep the percentage of time that we're spending on billable work high. But, you know, I'm, I'm aware of what people are putting in. If I were to, I have not yet had this problem, but if I were to see somebody sort of slacking, if you will, um, my first assumption would be that they're not tracking their time, not that they're not working because it's easy to forget to track. And I would just talk to them about it. And I suppose over time, if we noticed somebody was really never showing up, we would have to make a change. But I haven't seen that yet. And what has all of this done to your ability to attract employees and retain them? 
Uh, we have great employees and great retention. And now I will say, I think initially, if, when I first started hiring, I did not have the right hiring strategy and I did not have great retention. Um, so I lost my first employee after a year. I lost the next employees two and three after they had served, you know, been here only one year. The team that I've got now, I took a different approach to sort of what the appropriate background and skill set was. And it's a much better fit. And in fact, we joke about all retiring together. So I, you know, I don't see any evidence that there will be any turbulence. In terms of attracting talent, I'm really lucky. I'm in Boston. There's a ton of brilliant young people fresh out of graduate programs just looking around for jobs. <laughs> so there's just a lot of, there's a lot of higher ability around here. So that has not been a problem for me. Yeah, that's awesome. But, you know, really in a tight job market, I think a lot of other companies, um, maybe some of our listeners' companies, can um, take some of the um, ideas that you've put forth in your own to help with that employee attraction and retention because it it can be tough um, finding the right workers in this job market especially. Yes, that, uh, yes, and a lot of our clients are experiencing that as well. And I, I think, again, it, there is a lot that can be um, considered as a way to – invite people in. And I think we go too quickly to salaries and benefits as the answer. Small businesses, of course, are always going to struggle to pay great salaries and to give good benefits. But I think a benefits package that recognizes the real humanity and the real needs of the employees, first of all, is great. Like we have a pretty good health insurance program. We pay 50% of it. We're looking now, um, I think the next benefit we're going to offer is going to be related to student loan repayment. We have some young people working here. Mm-hmm. And um, there are some interesting new programs that can help uh, with like a pre-tax student loan payment. So for the employee, that's cash in their pocket because they're spending that every money right now. I mean, every month right now. So there's, you know, a real benefit to them, but it's also um, a good way for us to just help them stay on track and stay stable. You know, we don't want anybody going broke on their loan payments. Um, so those are the kind of benefits I think can be helpful. But I also think most companies can afford to be a lot more flexible than they are whether that's work from home policies or um, dress codes or, um, you know, tolerance for people having, you know, staggered schedules, whatever it is. Most people really need in this complicated world we live in a lot of flexibility. And I, I see a lot of companies sort of needlessly strict on things that are driving their workers nuts and are not really paying dividends back to the business. Oh, that's really interesting, too. Yeah, it's awesome. And I think it's because I actually think it's out of fear of being taken advantage of. Mm-hmm. And so there's a different problem in there because it's a set of assumptions about who's working for you. You know, if, if you really are worried that your employees are going to take advantage of you, that somehow your interests and their interests are not aligned, that's a strategy problem in the business more than a human resources problem. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, you know, certainly I'm sure we'll give many of us po- reason to pause and just reflect on, you know, how we're doing things and, and really look at that. So thank you. And unfortunately, we're just about out of time, Liz. I feel that you have so much to share and um, maybe we can have you back on one day to talk more about, you know, any number of topics, I'm sure. But thank is you. there any last uh, word of wisdom or thought you want to leave us with before we wrap up? No, <laughs> I don't have any wisdom. But I, I, I think the last thing I want to say is thank you so much. And it's always a pleasure to talk with you. And I find your questions and your insights to be illuminating. And so thanks for having me. Oh, awesome. Well, it was really fun talking to you. And um, I'm sure that the listeners enjoyed it as well. I'd like to thank them for listening to the show. 
My guest was Liz O'Connor, and you can find this complete interview and links to Liz's website. You can find out more about her on our website, readysetgrit.com. Thank you again for joining us, and check in again next Friday when we release another episode with tips on turning your daydream into a phenomenal success. Thanks for tuning in to Ready, Set, Grit, your life on purpose with Ellen Barton. Look us up online at readysetgrit.com where you'll find daily inspiration, links to our social media, and where you can access our ebooks and online classes. Ready, Set, Grit, inspired actions, real results.